Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here today. We are in uh, continuing in Nehemiah, and this series is called Return to God, because God's people, we have to learn how to return to Him, and, to, and for many people to turn to God in the first place. And uh, so the, the biblical story is this, that God saved His people from Egyptian slavery, brought them into their own land, established them, and called them to be a righteous and just kingdom, but they failed time and again. They turned away from God. They worshipped other gods, false gods, and perpetuated great evil and injustice uh, in the world. And God intervened to stop their evil ways and brought judgment upon them and sent foreign nations to conquer them, to drag them into exile. And they were in Babylonian in Babylon for 70 years in exile. And then after that time, people began to return to Jerusalem, return. There was a remnant always that had been in in, uh, Israel, in Jerusalem, but more people are returning from this exile. And one of the people is Nehemiah. And he's this cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who's the king of the Persian Empire at the time. And he basically gets resources and permission from Artaxerxes to go and rebuild Jerusalem, which is still in disrepair, uh, but also had recent attacks and parts of the wall are destroyed and the gates are destroyed. And so this remnant and the people that are returning are vulnerable, so vulnerable. And it's not just a generic story about protecting people who are vulnerable and having to fortify them and help them and save them. It's much more consequential than that because God had promised to bring about the savior of the world through the descendants of Abraham. And so this story of Nehemiah, the events in Nehemiah are all leading up to the coming of Jesus preserving this people group for the fulfillment of the promises of God. And in God's wisdom, this is how he has written his salvation story in history to save the human race from our sin. And so their building project had been temporarily paused because of opposition they had faced, faced all kinds of opposition, all kinds of internal problems as well. They're, you know, enslaving each other and exacting interest on each other on these sharky loans that they've been reading about in previous weeks, all these different things that have been happening. And today we're continuing. We're going to be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And we're now this week we're going to learn about a conspiracy that is planned against Nehemiah and how Nehemiah has to discern this conspiracy and respond to it. Let's pray and let's read. Jesus, thank you for your word. Teach us again, as you have each week, as you've been teaching us through the journey with Nehemiah, teach us today about truth, about how to overcome deception and lies and the destructive nature of that, of the twisting of things and misrepresentation of things. God, give us wisdom, give us the discernment we need to fight this kind of fight that you might be glorified and that people might know you and know the truth and be set free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read here. Now, one small note here. I've been saying, um, I think I've been saying Sambalat's name wrong. It's Sambalat. So I'm going to try and fix that this week. All right. So apparently, now when Sambalat and Tobiah, Tobiah I did get correct. When Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Samballot and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together at uh, Heketh Aram in the plain of Ono. 
just to say, if someone wants a meeting with you at some place called Oh No, ah, that's a bad sign. That's already a bad sign. Oh no. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sam Ballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. Bless you. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemahiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalet had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalet, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is God's word. This is God's word. What do we see happening here? We see time and again, Nehemiah's enemies have been threatening him. And this is, these are just more threats and they've been ramping up, trying to cause him all kinds of trouble and all kinds of issues, stoking up all these problems. And this is their, their last, you know, well, their, their most recent attempt at stirring up strife and trouble and making him, uh, making him afraid. And so they, they send him these four letters trying to call for a meeting. So they're very persistent. And it's a far-off meeting. And on the surface of this, it sounds very neutral, doesn't it? It almost sounds like they're trying to build peace, perhaps. At the very, just what we read of the initial letters, that he, these four letters that he's getting, uh, it sounds like peaceful, perhaps, or neutral. Like, hey, let's just meet. You know, like we've heard the, 
the walls have been rebuilt, like maybe we, should, we shouldn't fight you anymore, maybe we should have peace, it sounds almost neutral, but this would not be a smart move for Nehemiah, he would be vulnerable going to something like this, uh, it could endanger the whole project if something would have happened to him, um, you know, it's really taken his leadership to get the project to the, the reconstruction and the restoration project to the place that it is at, and so this is not a very wise move. Now we don't know, it doesn't say that he was tipped off to their intentions, that, that maybe somebody had heard through the grapevine that they were plotting against him. But I don't think he needs to be tipped off. I don't think, think Nehemiah needs somebody uh, to give him this tip, tip because it's pretty obvious. These people have been out to get him from the start, from the very beginning. Their, 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 their proposal to anyone with, with, with half a brain cell should be, this is bogus. This is absolutely, completely bogus. And this actually raises a a lesson for us, an important lesson for us, the, the tension between grace and trust. This tension between grace and trust. Now, there can be a misunderstanding for Christians about the concept of God's grace. We talk about grace all the time. That's what the gospel is. It's a gospel of grace. And so one of the big things that we can, or in danger of missing, is just the very nature of grace itself, that God forgives us of our sins based on his work and based on his initiative and his love, not based on our works. We can't earn that salvation. It's a free gift. That's the first big thing that Christians can get confused about. They, they, we, we constantly feel like we have to achieve it or attain it somehow, not realizing it's, it's been freely given to us. That's the scandal of it. That's the amazing nature of it. That's why we, our worship should be so extravagant because of the nature of, of the freeness of grace. But there are some other dangers with grace as well. Grace can some other dangers are that we can, we can use grace as an excuse to sin, say like, well, God will forgive me, so I'm going to go do this. But that's not what we're looking at here. Here we're looking at kind of another danger that we can use, we can apply grace wrongly in our relationships. We can say, well, God has freely forgiven us and extends so much unconditional love to us, and don't we just have to be, just treat people completely unconditionally and in how we, we perhaps relate to them and trust them? And some people might think, Nehemiah getting these four letters is very persistent. It looks like they're offering peace. It looks like they're offering something neutral. Like, shouldn't he at least give them a chance? Shouldn't he give them a chance? Shouldn't he hear them out? Shouldn't peace, isn't peace worth it? Shouldn't you pursue peace at all costs? At least, at least hear them out, right? Isn't that, isn't that what hippie Jesus would do? Isn't that what hippie Jesus would do, you know? vegan surfing, California-loving, vegan Jesus would do? Isn't that what Jesus would do? I don't, I'm not sure. Grace, if we think about it this way, grace, yes, it's free. Yes, it's a free gift. But God still has expectations on us, doesn't he? Doesn't God still have expectations on us? He's still like a parent who might love their child but has to discipline their children if they do wrong, has to have boundaries with their children. He's still the judge of the living and the dead. God's still the judge of the living and the dead, with a possible exception for zombies. I'm not sure how that works. It's a theological gray area with zombies. But zombies need boundaries as well, always invading people's personal space. So grace teaches us to be kind and forgiving towards people, but it doesn't teach us to trust the untrustworthy. Grace is not something that should be applied to say, I'm just going to continually trust the word of somebody who is a proven liar and has not shown that they are 
trustworthy. So four times they write to him insisting on this meeting. And four times he responds in the same way. He's not just building a city of refortifying the city. He's also a man of great fortitude, a man of great strength and great courage. We need to be people who can stand our ground and grow in this kind of courage as well. People that will resist evil, that will resist these kind of temptations, these kind of distractions. And people that will say yes to the, the kingdom work, the restoration work, the renewing work that God has. We want people who say yes, a wholehearted yes. God, I want to enter into your redemptive work. But we're people who, who are very clear, say no, no. Doesn't matter how many times you ask me. No, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna enter into that. How can we be the kind of people that have steel in our spine without going full Wolverine with it, but how can we be the kind of people who have steel in our spine where we can stand up to these kinds of things? The first and most important thing is to ask God for it. This is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us courage. He gives us boldness. We pray and ask God, if I lack courage, give me courage. We can respond to the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, respond to his work, and we can, we can be people who grow in our conviction of things, people who grow that character. One of the ways we, I'm going to talk about this more at the end, but one of the ways we grow our character and our conviction and our courage is to start in small things, in small ways, to fight small battles. Because big battles are hard, the pressure's on. So the way you practice is you, you, you make sure you're standing your ground in smaller areas. And there's, there's also another way that God grows us in courage and in having steel in our spine to stand up against these kinds of things is we get encouragement from others. Like literally, you know, the word encourage, right, means you, you're literally putting courage into other people. So sometimes we might need to phone a friend, say, talk to me, help me. Um, you know, honestly, there are, there are amazing biographies of people in, in, in history and great documentaries or movies you know, based on true stories that God uses those things to put courage into us when we lack courage because we, we read the accounts, we hear the stories of people who have stood up against things at great cost. It's inspiring. That can help. God uses it to help grow courage in us. I remember years ago when we actually first, the first summer that we were in Chicago that we moved here 13 years ago now to start the church and we had a plan. I always like to have a plan, which is why I like Nehemiah so much. He's a man with a plan. And uh, we did a bunch of uh, like outreach and, and evangelism during that first summer. And we, we talked to hundreds of people, doing all kinds of like spiritual surveys and going out and connecting with people and all this stuff that we did. It was amazing. We talked to like thousands of people. And at the end of that, we had this like list of like 50 people who were like, yes, I'm really interested in, in this new church. I want to like find out more about it and like maybe join. And, you know, and I'm thinking like, this is awesome. Wow. Like 50 people out of talking to hundreds, maybe thousands of people. Like this is, this is incredible. So we did an event and three of them turned up and I was like, what? Like, that's not, I talked to some of these people. They swore that they were going to do this. And, uh, so, you know, leadership lesson 101 right there. And, uh, you know, I remember calling a mentor of mine at the time and being like, what are we going to do? Like, you know, this is not working. And he just said, like, well, it, you know, obviously you have to try something else. Like, the thing you can't do is quit. You can't quit right now. Like, you have to try something else. And it was, like, so obvious, like, you know. But I went into that phone call feeling completely discouraged, and I came out feeling very encouraged, feeling like, oh, yeah, I've got the strength now 
to carry on. And as, as you get older, as you get more mature, as you practice these things, you, you find that, that there are still times you need to hear that. You always need to hear that from other people. But there are times that the Holy Spirit can actually generate that in you and you can be that voice for others. That helps put steel in their spine to encourage uh, them. So their tactics, Sam Ballot and Tobiah and Geshem and these other people, that Nehemiah's enemies, their tactics are not working. Nehemiah will not give them an inch. They're powerless and they're getting more and more desperate. And they're pulling out more and more tactics. So now they send an open letter. This is their next move. They send an open letter. And this open letter is filled with lies. Outrageous accusations and lies. They're claiming that, that Nehemiah wants to usurp Artaxerxes' kingship and that he wants to set himself up. It's kind of like a some kind of insurrection that might be happening, but it's a false narrative about it. That they're, they're setting, and then also they're saying, oh, he's got prophets who are going to declare that this is God's will. And the key of, for them, for having this letter be an open letter, it's an unsealed letter. So back in the day when they used to send letters like this, to know that it was an authentic letter that was from the right source, um, you know, they didn't necessarily have signatures. They, you know, would seal it and have a, a, an imprint on it that was that, only that person's imprint. And so if, you, if it got to you and the, the seal was broken, you might think, hang on, someone could have doctored this or changed this or it's not actually from them. So, they're, they're, and also the person who delivered it ideally would be somebody known to be from the, the source. So that's another way of validating and trusting a letter back in the day. That's what people had to do before we could had all kind of technology and other ways of, of authenticating things. Um, although now we have deep fake videos, right? So that's, I don't know how you get around that. You have, just be, be aware. If you see a video of somebody saying something, just think it could be a deep fake. You know, they're getting pretty good at it now. So um, if you don't know what deep fake is, just don't, don't worry about it. Just uh, it's another terrible thing of our day and age. Um, so uh, basically, what, the reason that they have this letter unsealed is so from the origin of it being sent to Nehemiah and before it gets to Nehemiah, people along the way, important people, all kinds of people can read it. It's not sealed. So these lies can spread. So that these accusations can spread. And these, these are very dangerous lies. I mean, this, these are the kind of lies that could get a war started against you. Artaxerxes turning against you, destroying you, whatever it is, because you're trying to usurp his power and trying to take his kingship away. Whatever it is that you're, you're trying to do, trying to revolt and try and rebel somehow. And so this is very dangerous. And but this is the nature of lies. Lies, man, lies can be juicy. And they spread, they, they spread quickly. We like lies. The truth is boring and ordinary. People don't really like to spread the truth because it's like, eh, it's not as fun. Lies, on the other hand, man, some good old-fashioned good old lies once in a while. I mean, I think that that's why like the, the, the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial kind of gripped the nation a little bit because of the just the salacious, juicy nature of it. Like, did you hear what she said? And did you hear what he said? Did you hear? We, it's so exciting, to these, these outrageous, and, and fa fantastical things that, that get spread around people's lives. And people want to tell, did you hear? Did you hear? And, you know, I haven't been, been in ministry for many years now. Sadly, I can report to you that this kind of thing still happens quite a bit. It happens in, in, you know, obviously it happens in all kinds of contexts, you know, happens at the national level, happens, you know, I'm sure it's, maybe this has happened in your company or your, your neighborhood, or it happens in churches too. It happens in churches too. People 
they, they like to share lies and gossip and, you know, it feels empowering, feels exciting. And I've got information, I can share it with you and I've got this and this and people, it's, it shouldn't be surprising to us, although it's saddening, it definitely is saddening, but it shouldn't be surprising to us that it's not uncommon that people don't want to actually resolve things. They don't want to seek peace. It's, it, they, they, in fact, want destruction. They want to destroy something. Or it can be that sometimes people are just acting out of their own pain. They just want, and they want to, other people to feel their pain. That's, it can be that raw. And that it's not, you know, it's still a malicious in one sense, but it's not as coordinated or calculated. Uh, but it can be up to this level as well. And, you know, in our day and age, people, you know, they'll still send letters. People will get together and they'll write letters. Hey, this person said this, this person said this, this. There's a whole chorus of voices here. Or they might opt for a mass email. You know, it's going to blast a whole bunch of people with salacious rumors. Uh, or they might, you know, take over a Zoom call or post something on social media or, you know, whatever, some rant or some long, you know, attacking, you know, th article they've written about, whatever it might be. This, these are the tactics and the things that people do. And sometimes it's coordinated with other people. It's at the conspiracy level. Other times it's just raw emotion and raw. I just want people to feel my pain. I want to cause some destruction on the way. Nehemiah responds to this and he writes back to them and calls them out on it and basically says, nothing like what you've said has happened. In fact, you have plucked this out of thin air. You've pulled this out of your mind. You've invented all this stuff. And he's absolutely right. This is complete nonsense. And what's, what's also shocking about this is they, <laughs> later on, we, we learn about this, this priest and we learn about these, these false uh, prophecies that are going to be uh, given. And we've learned that it's actually Sambala and Tobiah that have bribed these other people, to do this. But what is it they're doing to Nehemiah? They're accusing Nehemiah of the very thing that they are doing. This is the origin of all PR firms. Right here. This is the, strat the original strategy, all public. Yeah, that's what, it, that's what it is. So don't miss this point. It's, it's, this is a very sad thing that any time we hear something fantastical, something big, something monumental, something that sounds out of the ordinary or like, wow, that's really bad or that's not good or, you know, something like that. We have to pause and we have to consider, you know, it's not uncommon for people to accuse others of the exact thing that they are doing. Has this ever happened to you? You've been accused of doing the exact thing that the other person is doing. Sometimes we call that gaslighting, right? It's called gas. You're like really messing with people when, when that happens. And this is, well, psychology has a term for this, right? It's called projection. It happens in different ways. It's called projection where you, where you, um, you know, some pop psychology here, right? So you, uh, you, you, you see, it in the, and it's clearly, and that's just a psychological term for it, but it's clearly in the Bible here that um, it's, 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 it's very common, that the, very, the things that are within us, the, the faults within us, that we tend to project those things onto other people and be blind to the fact that we're doing it, that it's us, it's in us. Sometimes it can be very clear. We know exactly what we're doing. It's calculated. Other times we're, we're completely blind to it. I would say the more emotionally unhealthy we are, the, the, the more blind we are going to be to the fact that we do this. And, and no one's exempt from this. 
Everybody does this. We all project. We project. And we tend to project uh, the most onto those who are closest to us, but also onto authority figures as well. We tend to project our problems onto authority figures. And it's, it's something we have to see in the scripture here. We have to see it in our own lives. We have to discern it. And it's not just the kooks that do this, the kooky people, just the, the oddballs or the fringe people. It's not just those. I mean, you expect that. You know, there's always going to be some odd ones around who say crazy things. And everyone knows who those people are. It's like, okay, they're, they're saying that again. All right. You, you get that. That happens, right? This is a priest. This is somebody who is known to the community, who's known to the nation, who's a spiritual leader, and he's been bribed. He's been corrupted, and he's now conspiring against Nehemiah. We've got mentioned the prophetess Noadiah and others who are conspiring, spreading these things, agreeing with Nehemiah's enemies. It's not just the crazies. It's people of high standing. And this gives us an amazing insight, actually, that Nehemiah, obviously, he's got external opposition, but he's got major pushback, major enemies within the religious community itself. What a battle to face. He's got battles on every front within the, the religious community of Israel itself. He's got enemies, people who are directly trying to entrap him and defeat him and overpower him. So we've got this, this weaselly priest who's been corrupted by this bribe, and he's trying to trick Nehemiah to do a couple of things. He's, trying to, well, he's essentially trying to get him into the temple, and he's telling him, I know, he's, I've got inside information. I know they're going to come and kill you tonight. They're going to come, your life's in danger. He's trying to use fear to get Nehemiah to go into the, into the temple, but then into, I guess, maybe the, the second chamber within the temple. And if you don't know your, your biblical history here, um, the Israelites had a, a tabernacle, which was a fancy luxury tent in the Old Testament, which is kind of like a, um, they didn't stay in it, God stayed in it, but that's why it was a luxury tent. Uh, it was for God. But it was the idea that, that this is, God is our king, and this inner chamber has like a throne in it, which was the, the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments in it, all that stuff. That's God's throne. And God's our king. We don't have another king like other nations. We worship God. And then they eventually built that tabernacle. They turned it into a temple. So it's now a permanent fixture. And only the priests go into that. There's, there's the holy place. That's the first room. There's only two rooms. You've got the holy place. That's the first room. Second room is the most holy place. And only the high priest goes into the most holy place. So Nehemiah has no business being in either room. And he's saying, if I go into this, you know, he says, if I go into this room, this would be sin. But they're trying to use the fear of death, imminent threat. And he's a priest. It's almost like, well, if anyone can give me permission to do this, it will be a priest. Surely if it's coming from a priest, I could, maybe, maybe God would allow it because, you know, my life's in danger and I'm really important to this project. So maybe, maybe I should go with this guy. This is the trap. This is the trick. If Nehemiah hid like this and violated the temple like this, he would be disqualified as a leader. The nation would turn against him because they would see that he was being cowardly. You can't just run away and hide like this. You've got to fight. You've got to you know, man up in this situation. You can't just do that. He's being cowardly, but also he wouldn't be trusting God. He'd be violating God's law. And so it would have been over. This, this, this trap that they've, this, this plot that they've devised against Nehemiah. And dealing with, you know, dealing with a devious person like this, this kind of thing, the, the, sad, the sad thing is, is that this is a reality of life and of ministry. This is a reality of life and of ministry. We cannot be naive 
We cannot be naive that conspiracies don't happen. Part of the problem for us is that we, we you know, a lot of our mythology as a culture, right, is built around these, these wild conspiratorial type things. So we tend to roll our eyes when we hear about conspiracies, right? Did we land on the moon? You know, JFK assassination, you know, Roswell, whatever it is. We've got all these different things. So we, we tend to hear about consp- you know, crazy conspiracies like coronavirus came, came from a lab or something like that, you know, crazy things like that. So just, to, just so you know, most people now think that the virus came from a lab, right? If you didn't know that, okay, that's a newsflash right there. But we tend to roll our eyes when we hear about conspiracies because of the nature of our context. But we, we, we can't afford to do that because we have to understand, we have to be discerning like Nehemiah and realize that people have conspired and people will conspire and people are conspiring. This isn't just the kooky people that do this. This is people of stature, people with important positions. They will coordinate and lie together. And this is why conspiracies are so dangerous. They're so dangerous. We shouldn't be naive to them. We shouldn't be so fooled by them, but we are. And they're so powerful and so corrupting because we hear the voices and we say, well, how can all these prominent voices, they're all in one accord, they're all in agreement, they can't all be lying, can they? That's the power when people conspire with each other to get a particular outcome. That's the power of it. If we had read this letter from Sam Ballot, let's say we, we got to see a copy of the letter before it got to Nehemiah, and we read it, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the people of the region. They're, they're, they're re- it's, hey, it's from Sam Ballot. That's a big deal. From one of his own men. I'm reading it, and they're saying, Geshem's saying the same stuff. What? Geshem said that too? You've got to be kidding me. The whole region knows about this? I didn't hear about this. This is news. I'm the only one that didn't know. Oh, my gosh. Everyone else knew except for me. This is, this is the... But if it is a conspiracy, if it is a conspiracy, then yes, that means that all these people are lying. That does happen. Conspiracies are built mostly on hearsay. You can doctor evidence, of course, but it's mainly on gossip and hearsay and things like that. And the only way to overcome a conspiracy is to say, what's the evidence? You've got to look at evidence. You know, a blurry photograph of someone in a, an, an ape costume does not prove that there's a Bigfoot, you know? It'd be fun if it did, but it doesn't. If you haven't noticed... All photographs that relate to unsolved mysteries, they're all grainy, right, and blurry. Things from far away, can't quite see it, all right? That should be a sign to us. Really should be a big clue to us. If something's blurry and grainy and not quite clear, well, it could be a misrepresentation, could be a fraud, could be a fake photograph, could be just something random that just happens to look like this other thing could be like that. And so whenever you have a conspiracy happening, you have a chorus of voices that seem to have a lot of weight and prominent people, even priests, people who should be spiritual leaders, the very people that should be supporting Nehemiah's rebuilding efforts, the people that should be like saying we should return to God. Those people are the ones also conspiring. When that happens, we have to then start asking, well, where's the evidence? How do we know this? And then when you start asking that question, you start pushing into it, that's when you realize the picture's blurry. It's grainy. Therefore, 
can, how much stock can you put in it? How much trust can you put in it? How does this apply to us? How does this relate to us? We, any one of us might be the object of a conspiracy. That could happen. We also might be in a context, a group of people, a church or another organization or something, where there, is, there are a few people conspiring you know, about somebody prominent or somebody in charge or somebody else. That could happen. We have, to, we have to be aware, wise enough to not be duped by that. But also, we could be directly part of a conspiracy. People could approach us. Well, haven't you seen this? What about this? Or we could be initiating that ourselves. So there's a few ways that we can be caught up in these types of coordinated attacks or coordinated efforts to discredit or to attack or whatever it is or to spread things that aren't true. We can easily be caught up in those things. If we find, if we suddenly realize, oh my gosh, I think I might be caught up in some kind of coordinated attempt here, some kind of conspiracy that's happening. If we get caught up in that, our response has to be swift. I have seen situations before where, unfortunately, responses are limited, but, but the response needs to be swift because lies are juicy and they spread really quick. And you have a few inner people who have conspired. Maybe sometimes it's just two or three people who have conspired and started the lies, but then as it branches out from there, the rest of the people don't know. They're not in on it, but they believe it. And then it takes on a life of its own. It grows a whole, the story gets round and round and round and round. And it grows, it grows into a life of its own. That's why the action has to be swift to come against a conspiracy because once it gets out there, it's almost impossible sometimes, depending on how big it spreads, to correct the record. Very difficult to correct the record on this. And the, the response has to be, has to be swift and we, we have to be committed ultimately to truth. That's the goal here. The goal here is to be committed to truth. I've got to find the truth, no matter where the truth leads me to, because obviously some accusations are true, right? We have to discern that. All these, if that's the end of it, I've got to be completely committed to that, to finding the truth. I also have to discern, well, you know, is this twisted? Is it partially true? There are bits of truth in it, but it's overblown somehow, or misrepresented somehow, or wrong somehow. I have to discern that as well. Or is it, like this situation, it's completely made up, just plucked out of thin air. It's a complete lie. I have, to, I have to discern that. And Nehemiah, he feared God more than he feared the enemies who were threatening to take his life. And because of that, because he was so strong in that, it didn't take him long at all. It took him a split second to say, well, I'm not going to give in to this. I'm not going to take this action. I'm not going to respond in this way. I'm not going to fall into this entrapment because he was able to because because his heart was more concerned about what's the right thing to do before God what's the God honoring thing the God glorifying thing to do because that was his north star he was not pulled aside by it but we do we unfortunately see many leaders fall from grace all kinds of temptations come their way sometimes it's a coordinated attack some kind of conspiracy like this this can happen Sometimes, though, it's a kind of uh, the, the conspiracy of, of spiritual forces, right? Of evil forces, tempting, and trying to trip somebody up. And leaders can, when they get in moments of temptation, this is a temptation, but other types of temptation, leaders can fall from grace. We've seen it happen over the last several years, right? Very prominent Christian leaders falling from grace. And it happens because people aren't principled, 
because we're not, when I say people, we should think about ourselves. If we fall, it's because we weren't principled. To be somebody who is principled means that we have unchanging convictions and truth that we believe that apply in all contexts, at all times, this is, the right, this is the righteous, right way to live. And then so when circumstances happen, when things go on, those unchanging principles have to be applied, even if it's really hard, even if we want to do everything but apply the principle, we say, no, I'm, I'm a principled person. I believe that this is the greatest, this is, this is the truth. This is the greatest way to live. This is the righteous way to live. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be principled. But if, if we're not principled people, then we'll fold. When the fear, someone's going to come tonight and they're going to kill you. Tonight, they're going to come. They're going to kill you. Man, if you're not a principled person, that could force you into a really bad choice, right? Very powerful words, very manipulative words to use. How can we cultivate, like I mentioned earlier on, how can we be people who cultivate conviction, cultivate character? Here's how we do it. Obviously, we ask the Holy Spirit to help us. We ask him to, to, to shape us as his ministry, his role. We ask, but we have to respond to that. We have to respond to the work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we have to practice integrity in the small things. You have to practice integrity in the, in the small things. When no one's around, when no one's watching, what do we do? What, what will we do? Because if we'll do things we wouldn't do in front of other people, then we care. The, the fear of man is what's driving us, not the fear of God, like Nehemiah had. Nehemiah had the fear because he feared God. He did this. But we had the fear of man if we're, not, if we're willing to, to do something. So you know, as the scripture says, the scripture says elsewhere, it says, if you're faithful in small things, then you'll be faithful in, in bigger things. And so it goes to say that if, you're, if we're dishonest in small things, we'll be dishonest in bigger things. If we're corrupt in small ways, we'll be corrupt in bigger ways. It's just the way it goes. It just magnifies depending on the opportunity. So we need to be the kind of people who take care of the small things. That's how you grow it. You be diligent and we have integrity in the small things. That means we're the kind of people that we declare all of our income on our taxes. It's a small thing. We say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that. It's the right thing to do. That's right. It means we're the kind of people that say, you know, the music I listen to and the movies I consume, I'm actually paying for them. It's the small thing. We're the kind of people that say, yeah, I don't, I don't take things from my employer, including stationery. Don't take it. We're the kind of people that say, we, I work all the hours I'm supposed to work, even if it's my birthday. Unless I have PTO, right, obviously. But I work, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I've, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who keeps my promises. I stick to my word, you know. I don't, I don't color the truth. I don't cheat. I don't take. The problem with saying this, it's true. We all know it's true. We all know, yep, that's, you're the people that get these small things right. Well, they'll, they'll get the bigger things right. The problem with pointing out the small things is that we've all failed at some of the small things, haven't we? We've all failed at some of those small things. I know I have. And so we need to redeem those things. We need to respond and say, make, make a decision today to say, I'm going to start correcting. Because the great thing about the small things is, oftentimes they're not that hard to correct because they're small. 
I could do this today. This is great. Not much effort. Today, I can start correcting those things. So the next time, in future times, I'm, I have that integrity of character. I have that principled as a person so that when the pressure comes, when the temptation comes, I don't bow to it, I don't give in to it. Nehemiah is an amazing example to us of somebody who stood his ground, didn't give in, even though there was a, even a conspiracy against him, didn't give in. And he, his example points to, of course, the greatest example, the greatest leader, the greatest savior, Jesus. Jesus, of course, shows us the greatest way to return to God, to be made one with God. He doesn't just show it to us, he gives that to us. He acts that out for us. And there's one encounter with Jesus. Jesus, very famous story, maybe you're, you're familiar with it, but where Jesus meets Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is a man who lacks integrity. He's a, a cheating tax collector. And Zacchaeus decides he's going to follow Jesus. Jesus comes over to his house and they spend time together and he gives his life to Jesus. And it's amazing. This, this story reveals to us the very heart of the gospel that here you have somebody with no character, no integrity, who's made mistake after mistake after mistake, who's swindled people out of lots of money. And what happens to him? Does he change his life around? And then Jesus is like, all right, you're in. It's the opposite. He gets in, and then he, what does he do? If you know the story, you know the, the event that happened. After the fact, he says, I'm going to return everything I've stolen plus extra. I'm going to go the extra way. That's the power of the free gift of grace. When grace comes into your heart, it transforms you so that you, you live up to the ideal of the righteousness of God. You, you have a new desire to say, I want to live up to this, this, this glorious way of, of, of being holy like God, of saying no to what is evil. But it doesn't start from that place. I receive this gift and then I respond out of humility, out of grace, out of gratitude. It only happens through Jesus. Respond in worship to Jesus. Because this is the great thing that Jesus has come to do for us, is to die in our place, being murdered on a cross, buried in a tomb, risen from the grave, all of that securing our salvation, giving us the free forgiveness of our sin, life forevermore.